Welcome to Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And you've made it. Ooh. You have finished your uh, 104 weeks of reading uh, of scripture together, and uh, what a week uh, to finish to. Just the, the text of Malachi that makes us, points us so much more towards uh, our need for Jesus and um, the unresolved Old Testament, and then uh, just the beautiful resolution uh, that we get out of the book of Revelation. And then a beautiful song to, to mm-hmm. read this week as well yeah. to, to cap it all off. And so, um, but let's recap uh, Malachi and then, then the last few chapters of Revelation. And so um, just just to help us understand where we're coming from in Malachi, this is a time where uh, the Israelites uh, have have been rebuilding. They've been restoring things. And I think they're, they had returned with this hope that um, this refining process in Babylon and, and in Persia um, had uh, brought about change, um, that, that there was hope um, and maybe even a longing for like the good old days under David or anything like that. But um, the, the, the struggle is that they get there and Things haven't been totally restored, uh, both external and internal. Uh, they they are, don't control their own power. They are still uh, under the power of Persia, and then internally, um, they're still struggling with sin. We we kind of left off in books like Nehemiah and um, and and Haggai and others that were with sort of this left with this this sense of um, things have the people's hearts haven't really totally been changed sin still rules the day uh and and what's going to happen and malachi sort of reminds us that we're sort of stuck in that space through this sort of q a kind of format of the book a dialogue between god and his people so we just came off of reading zechariah which is very conditional god's going to return and bless and restore if you follow his ways and if your hearts are compliant to his will but we do see here in malachi um that this new israel post exile israel turned out to be just as corrupt as the previous generations and like chris said it's sort of a question and answer format so we'll hear god say something israel say something and then god respond with the last word and so we're introduced right from the get-go to malachi which really just means messenger but this um this this um, basically prophet he receives this oracle this this message from from the lord to, to bring to the people uh, and it starts pointing out uh, something that Paul certainly picks up on in Romans nine. This, this um, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. But uh, I think uh, ultimately God's pointing out in the context here. Um, look, there, there, there are nations like Edom who were destroyed by my judgment, and Babylon and others all around them that have been destroyed. And yet God's saying, look, but you, I, I, I am staying. I've been faithful to you. Like yes, you had to go through some judgment too, but. But I have not broken off my covenant to you. I've still been faithful to you, my people. And 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 God starts here to remind them in this Q and A, like that as they're questioning God's faithfulness to them, saying like, "Look, like of all the nations on this planet and nations who I've who are being destroyed and pummeled." I'm still here with you, and you are being restored right now. And yet, they're still questioning him. Yeah, Israel really is doubting God's love for them, but God reminds them that he chose to fulfill his promise through Jacob and not Esau. And while God points out here that he chose to extend blessing through Jacob's line, we also see the end of this section of Malachi praising God beyond the border of Israel. And so this is the beginning of multiple promises that we'll read about of God extending his blessings to all nations. 
Yep. Uh, and God points out the sort of a, a very practical, like pointing out, look, a, a father, a father gets respect from his children. And I'm your heavenly father. So, so where's my respect? Why, why is there not that sort of attention paid to me? And, and it seems like they've gotten essentially lazy about their offerings. And, and yes, there's a certain condemnation on the priest here, but remember the, the priest's job is to inspect the offerings. The offerings are also being brought by the people. Um, and, and the problem is the priests seem fine with it are not instructing and correcting the people. Um, but, uh, the people themselves are also seemingly apathetic. There are gifts that they're bringing that you wouldn't even bring the governor. So why would you bring them to the, to God? That's sort of the correction here. Um, and it's gotten so bad that God essentially tells even the priest, I wish that one of you would just shut down the temple altogether. And he, he points out my name will be great among the nations, which, um, is a, is a beautiful refrain that exists throughout the, the old Testament. And, uh, but, but in this context, God's pointing out, look, you are my chosen nation and you guys are doing a, an awful job at, at, um, at glorifying my name as, as a country. And, and at some point it's going to be the rest of the nations who do, who, who really, um, make, make my name great that, that go out, um, and my name will be great amongst them, uh, more than, um, this group that is struggling. And, and God, as we move in chapter two, God does hone in on the priest much more. Um, and he, and he sort of uses analogy, like you, you guys are offering me dung. So I'm just going to rub the dung back into you in the faces of your families. And, and he's reminding them, look with Levi set up this covenant of life and peace and Levi rightly feared me. That's not happening with the priests at this moment. And, and what they're doing is that they're not, as I said, instructing the people. Uh, so there's, there's some role the priests do have in the instructions of the people. Um, their, their job is to go back to the Torah and instruct what God actually requires of the people. Um, and, and they themselves are not living in line with what they are supposed to be teaching either. Yeah, this section helps us to really see clearly that we need a better priest. And of course, we see that fulfilled through Jesus Christ as our perfect priest uh, for us who atoned for our sins. We also see here, though, God calling out the priests and their spiritual leadership in the community. We know what they're to do here. They are to fear God and to stand in awe of his name and to turn from sin. He says, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth. And so step back and ensure that your spiritual leader is doing those sorts of things. And that's the kind of leadership you want, Uh, not just a really winsome, charismatic, entertaining leader, but someone who is truly seeking wisdom and um, turning from sin. And God points out some of their sin. Uh, some of that's about relational unity, that they're wrongly sort of treating and interacting with each other. Uh, but there's also idolatry. They're worshiping foreign gods, which is pointed out. Um, and third has to do with marriage. Um, some of this might be some of the practical stuff that we saw in Ezra, where Ezra starts freaking out and telling everybody to get divorced from these wives that they've married um, and, and pointing out maybe that God hates marriage. But there's also sort of the metaphorical, almost like a Hosea-likeness a way of reading through the section two of saying like, um, they, they, they are acting sort of in, in infidelity, leaving their God in some ways. Uh, but either is clear that they've committed sin, whether it's abandonment of God or divorce in a literal way. And yet they are coming to worship as if everything's okay. And God's pointing that out saying like, look, like y- you're not living in line with what I've called you to live and you're worshiping and thinking everything's totally fine. Um, and he wants none of it. Yeah. God is 
not answering their prayers and they don't understand why. And God is like, listen, you're, you're walking in sin. Of course, I'm not going to listen to your prayers. And the hypocrisy here is real. They want Israel here wants the things that God is going to give them, but they're not seeking to obey him. And then they're blaming God when they're not experiencing the blessing of following him. And I think that that can be a strong connection with us as well. When are we wanting the blessings of God, but not willing to submit to the directions and instructions of God? And, and one of the ways they've messed up, and this is kind of pointed out in chapter two, is that they've been telling people who are living sinfully in the sight of the Lord that they're, but that they're fine, as if that's totally okay with the Lord, and it's not. And, and they've also asked, where, where's the God of justice? Which, at this moment, when they're living in hypocrisy, they probably shouldn't be demanding uh, to begin with. And, and then we move into sort of this promise of one to come, one who's going to teach repentance, and, and that before the Lord arrives, one who's going to play a role in calling people to repent and cleansing them, which we certainly see in John the Baptist, and, the bapti- and baptism itself, uh, sort of this picture of cleansing. Um, and that the one that arrives, the, the, the day of the Lord will be like this a refining one. And yet, um, when the Lord comes, it will finally be uh, an offering pleasing to him, which goes back even to that statement where we just talked about. Um, because it's not as if we show up to God and worship totally rightly either. It's the beauty of the one who finally came to bring an offering that was pleasing to God. So now, even in our sinfulness, God can listen to our prayers in a way that responds because of the faithfulness of Jesus and not ours. And 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 there'll be this judgment on Israel that's kind of pointed to as well, which I would argue we kind of see after Jesus is uh, 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 departing from this earth, uh, sort of leading up to, to the destruction of the temple. And so um, we sort of see some of this play out uh, in John the Baptist and Jesus and then sort of the time soon after Jesus. Yeah, I love this idea of a messenger that's going to purify the people and and leaving a faithful remnant. And God reminds them that he's never changed. Like that's why he's still around and he's still in this and he's still faithful to him because he keeps his promises. He, he made a promise to Abraham. He made a promise to Jacob. He made a promise for Moses. He will stay around. They will be his people. Um, and he calls them to return to him again and again and again. Um, and, and they asked, uh, God points out they've been robbing him. They ask how, and God points to their sacrifices that they've just been lacking and not in line with what God has asked them to do. They're sort of, once again, going through the motions, apathetic. And he suggests they try doing um, the right things and see what happens, that there's rain, locust, and good wine harvest. And 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 um, God points out again that they've been speaking harshly to him. And they're like, when? It's like when you point out that there's really no point obeying. And some people utilize this to make a bit of a prosperity type gospel, but the the point of the context here is God pointing out their apathy about worship, not the sort of formula of if you do this, then all these earthly practical blessings will take place. He's trying to call them from apathy to actually legitimate worship. Yeah. And I think it's a matter of considering too what blessing is. We see here God longing to bless Israel with abundance, but when they are unfaithful, they are rejecting his blessings. And I think we do the same thing. We are promised the fruit of the Holy Spirit through joy, peace, contentment, and we long for it, but we are often unfaithful and seek to control things in our own ways. And we wonder why we can't have the fruit of the spirit and also control our own outcomes. But before we think everything is awry in Israel, there are those. There's always a remnant, and there are those who fear the Lord. Whether it's the 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 prophets who stood up to the prophets of Baal, whether it was um, 
uh, people who looked at uh, the the broken kings and were willing to stand up. There were always remnants uh, in the history of Israel. And the same is true in the book of Malachi. There were those who feared the Lord and had their names and were willing to say, look, we, we, we are standing for the things that the Lord stands for and we will honor him. And God kind of says, I, I will remember you. Going back to sort of that initial child analogy, this picture is kind of put in here too, that God will treat the child who honors him with honor and, and he will help um, them see the distinction between righteous and wicked. And so we start seeing that play out as the book starts wrapping up. Yeah, Israel, you can tell they're kind of stuck in their current perspective and they're like, the unjust always succeed. And God is like, write down what I have done. And this is a good reminder for us too. When we start to feel in the moment, like God's not showing up or answering prayers, let's look back and see how he has been faithful to us. And it will encourage us to remember that he will continue to be faithful moving forward. And a, and a day of judgment is coming. I mean, there's there's no doubt in, in most of these prophecies um, that, that this is coming and the Messiah himself will bring healing in his wings or in this, the edges of his garment, which uh, if we go back to the hemorrhaging woman uh, in the Gospels, this is certainly a tie-in, this, this Malachi mm-hmm. phrase that um, there was a belief that just the fringes of the garment would bring healing. And so, um, but the picture is that there's, there's victory in Jesus. And the instruction that we're sort of left with is remember and keep the covenant. Remember what Moses has spoken. Let's keep it. Uh, and that there's one coming, uh, Elijah. He's coming. Now, there's a debate of John the Baptist as a type of Elijah and whether there's a literal Elijah coming with, I mean, even in Revelation, we saw the two witnesses and whether that's showing up. But anyways, but there's this very much this picture of, but there's a messenger who's coming. Um, John the Baptist certainly fits some of that role. Um, and But the, the point towards the future of God's final restoration. Yeah. As Israel thinks of God's judgment, they may be afraid because the exile was so recent, but God here gives them hope that for the faithful, the day of judgment will bring comfort and healing and deliverance. And we do see this fulfilled in Christ. Yeah. So final thoughts? Um, I think this book is an amazing summary of the heart condition of man as well as what God will do with that. Over and over, we see Israel complaining toward God and justifying their own actions, even though we know that they're totally blinded to who they were and who God is. But God doesn't give up on them or turn his back on them. And instead, he promises a final redemption, a purifying judgment, where his people are going to find healing and full restoration. It just leaves you on the edge of your seat waiting to see what God, who does not change, will do. Such a good cliffhanger for those 400 years of silence that followed before the birth of Christ. Yeah, I mean, the book's surely sets up the start of the gospels as well, especially Mark who starts just right off the bat with John the Baptist. But um, it, it beautifully covers the tension that we're just left with as we close the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we have prophets like Jeremiah and others who say, you know what, what, what God is going to do is put new hearts in us and take things of stone and make them flesh and, and all these promises. And, and there had to have been some tension sort of post exile back in Jerusalem rebuilding and, and Malachi is reminding them, look, we still aren't there. We still need something to happen. We still need this new covenant that God has been promising. Um, there, we still have sin in our hearts and we still practice idolatry and we need something external of us to fix that. And, uh, and that's where we're kind of left with as the book closes. 
And so uh, let's jump to New Testament where we do get the resolution to uh, that problem. We certainly got it on the cross, and then we will see it even more as we get to this new heaven and new earth. But um, we, we kind of come full circle and we start getting, um, we have it throughout Revelation, but this very, um, start getting this tie into to Genesis 1 and 2 uh, that much more that this angel shows up and he has keys over the abyss or the deep, uh, which is really uh, the same word that's used in Genesis 1 2, this sort of deep the, that filled the earth that the Holy Spirit hovered over. And um, we get references to a chunk of Daniel in the previous section. We see, we'll see Daniel and particularly Isaiah as we play out in this next few sections as well. Um, and, and I hope we realize like there's a lot of debate and, and maybe you're not in these debates at all, but there's a lot of conversations that people have, particularly in this book around this one section about a thousand years. Um, and it's not like the most significant section of the book. Uh, it almost feels like a little bit of a, of a, of a footnote. It's not a long section. It's not described very much. Um, but hopefully we've given you some tools to talk about numbers and, and how particularly apocalyptic language uses numbers. And, uh, I think the imagery behind the, the number of thousands is simply like an, a long era, a complete era, um, where the kingdom of God will be seen clearly for what it is. And, and this is a message of hope for people who are struggling to see that kingdom in the midst of evil and Satan. And he's encouraging those. Uh, and he speaks of those who have been martyred. And and that and there's got to be a feeling like, was there martyrdom in vain? What will happen to these people who were killed before Jesus has returned? And, and, and there's a statement of that they will reign with him. There'll be a position of honor for those who have stood up for the faith and have been killed for it. Um, and, and remember, too, this Jewish understanding of Daniel and resurrection. And, and I think John is doing some things with that. Even some of the apocryphal ideas of the righteous ones who died um, is pulled in here. And then we speaks of the second death as well. Uh, But we'll get to that in like a section or two as we talk through it. So we see here that Satan's evil is restricted and those who are martyred are finally able to see the fruit and the outcome of their faithfulness. And it's an encouragement to the people back then who were dying for the faith to remember that the work of evil will be ended and there will be a reward for faithfulness. This is a theme throughout the book of Revelation and a reminder to us today to remain faithful as well. Yeah, and and lying ahead, and we shouldn't be surprised, is one last effort by Satan to to sort of win. Uh, But it's a little too little too late. Uh, There's this imagery, again, from the Old Testament, Ezekiel this time, but uh, this final battle of Armageddon and Jezreel and um, Satan having one final sort of attempt at destruction. Uh, And it's worth remembering um, that if we read these things too literally, I think we miss some of the point that John's trying to make. And, And we turn it into some apocalyptic vision of encouragement into some crystal ball of future happenings, uh, this idea, once again, that you must persevere. It, it may seem like Satan is winning, but he's not. In the end, God and his kingdom will win out. So don't give up hope. Yeah. Satan's trying to gather the nations for a last battle, but we know he's going to lose. And um, and then we see sort of the great white throne sort of scene at the end of chapter 20. And once again, this book of life uh, imagery from Daniel uh, and everyone dead, alive, everyone, everyone will be judged. Um, And your name is either in the book of life or it is not That's sort of the the categories. And um, ultimately what puts your name in the book of life is your faith in Jesus. And, um, and that's, that's the distinctive, distinctive point. Uh, and we should also notice that everything's going to be made right in this section. No one's name is going to be forgotten. Everything's going to be put in its appropriate place. And, and we also get clarity around the first, first, second death uh, in this section. The first death is what we commonly know as death, um, sort of the death of the body, uh, the typical death. But then the second death is this final judgment where even and say, uh, evil and Satan and those whose names aren't in the book of life are cast into the fire. 
This idea of this final judgment is really foundational to what we believe as Christians, and it can also be uncomfortable to talk about. We need to understand and truly believe by faith that there will be a judgment, and only the people who will be delivered from that judgment are those who have accepted the work of Christ. Our own deeds cannot save us, and this is why we live with urgency to share the gospel with others. Yeah, and then we get to the new heaven, new earth, and John, uh, through this whole closing section, is pulling all these beautiful images uh, into the finale of his book, but doing so in a way that is reminding them what has been spoken before. Like uh, Isaiah 65 spoke of the new heavens, new earth, and this new Jerusalem, uh, this one from heaven that will be there. And uh, Isaiah 61, that it'll be like a bride and uh, and it'll be a dwelling place for God and his people with Ezekiel and Zechariah and Jeremiah all speak of. And um, even Exodus and Leviticus speak of those things. And he will wipe away every tear, which is Isaiah. And and he is making all things new, which is also from Isaiah. And, and, and he's not making all new things, but all things new, this idea of um, both, I think, at times of of something uh, all new altogether, but also being renewed at the same time, and um, and it's as if John is pointing backwards to all these prophets to say that moment that we have been talking about for years and years and years and years when things will finally be restored is here in this imagery of the fountain of life that John certainly uses in his gospels as well. Um, and the one who conquers, which we've seen multiple times, every one of the letters in the opening sections ends with the one who conquers and which can also be the word overcomes the, the one who holds onto the faith until the end. There is victory to be had, um, and, and there's a sense of Malachi and those who will be judged versus those who won't. And um, But once again, he, there's encouragement again to persevere to the one who conquers or overcomes. Yeah, so we start to really wrap up the story with this remembrance that God makes it all right, a new heaven and a new earth, and God dwelling with his people once and for all, and he's going to take away all the pain and sorrow. He's making all things new. And so we see here a restoration of God's creation or created design, and we see a holy city following the marriage theme even that we see throughout Scripture. So think of Eden. It was a garden, and then we end up in a city where God dwells again with mankind. This is what we were created for and what we can anticipate coming in the future. And then we get John having an Ezekiel-like moment where he's sort of swept away and then shown this this city this time, and, and who, that's also a bride, but there's a lot of overlap with Ezekiel's vision of the temple and the, the foundations of the temple, the foundations themselves are the apostles, which Ephesians calls out as well. There's all this temple versus city language. Um, and, and there's certainly parallels to Ezekiel, um, in perfect communal numbers and all this kind of stuff. But it's as if John, but John also has this way above and beyond measurements uh, to compare to Ezekiel's vision as if Ezekiel didn't do justice to what God is really going to do. Uh, and the imagery is meant to be one of brilliance. There's called the colors of the rainbow, all this sort of gems and all, mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff going on in this city, um, which is like Ezekiel's temple, but it's not a temple. We were told very explicitly in Revelation, this is not a temple. And the reason why is because if you think about the role of the tabernacle and then leading to the temple, it was supposed to be this sort of dwelling place of God where heaven and earth met. Um, Not that God is absent from other places, but this unique place where heaven and earth become one. But in this new heaven and new earth, they're sort of unified in a full sense where heaven and earth sort of collide in its fullness. So there's no need for the temple anymore because basically the whole earth is the temple of the Lord. Um, and there's images of the sun and moon no longer being needed, which is Isaiah as well. And, and every nation is going to start coming to, to God to bring a glory, which has Zechariah overtones as well. The gates will never be shut, which is Isaiah. And there's no more unclean things that will enter, which is Isaiah as well. All these things, once again, that have been pointing 
forward, John is culminating and bringing mm-hmm. together in this final vision. Yeah, it's don't don't lose the fact that the truth here is that there will no longer be a separation between God and mankind. This entire city is the Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God and the high priest Christ Jesus rules. There are no opponents and the city gates are open day and night and this city is full of glory and honor. Yep. Uh, and we get an it continued Genesis type imagery, this, this river that, that runs through it, um, which is also from Zechariah and Psalms. Um, and once again, I think we're utilizing what John has done e- earlier um, in this uh, in letter, uh, which we saw in Ephesians that he speaks of this tree of life, but he actually uses an odd word for tree and a word that sometimes gets translated as cross. Um, and it's, I would argue this reversal of imagery that Adam and Eve were kind of kicked out of the garden as sinners, in order because if they ate the tree of life, they would, that would be a problem. Um, and then sort of this poetic changing that for sinners, uh, for, for us to be entered into the eternity, um, we had to eat and, and, and partake of the cross of life with Jesus. And, and it becomes this, this very, um, um, re, um, I would argue, yeah, poetic, a reversal, uh, that John even, I think he's utilizing by his use of words here. Uh, it's the very thing that brought the healing to the nations. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we draw this section, it's kind of pulling us back to the beginning of the story that, um, kind of using Genesis imagery, um, and, and even a river with trees on either side, which Ezekiel speaks of and this curse, uh, which is Genesis three all over. Um, we're going to find that nothing accursed will be found, even as uh, we kind of wrap up at Christmas time. That that there's certainly the song where we speak of far as of the curse is found, God will bring redemption, and um, that that's that's straight from this section of Revelation twenty two. And now the throne is here. We will finally see Him face to face, no longer as Paul says in the mirror dimly, but face to face, and we will reign forever, which is certainly Daniel language as well. Yeah, I mean, think of everything we've read up to now and this idea of seeing his face. Moses couldn't see God face to face. And John and Paul both talk about longing to see Christ face to face. And there will come a time that we can stand in his glory and see his face and be fully, fully illuminated by the goodness and glory of God. And then coming full circle, at the end of this book, we, we have some language that just how he started. Uh, he sent his angel to show his servant what must soon take place and blesses the one who keeps these words. And we even get a rehash of just how overwhelmed John was that he, he bowed down and worship even an angel who had to correct him. Um, and, and Daniel, it's fascinating because Daniel was told, hey, seal up this prophecy because this stuff's going to happen in a long time. And here in John, John's told, do not seal this up because the, the moment is soon. Um, as if... Um, as if what John is speaking of is, is an imminent, like we are in these days uh, and the wicked will do wicked. The righteous will do righteous. And the Lord is coming soon for his recompense. That's the instruction we're given here. So hope once again, hope in the Lord, keep striving, uh, purify your ropes, which is how um, through hope. And, and Jesus reminds them once again, sort of closing, I am the branch, this Messiah that you have been promised and Zechariah and Isaiah and all these things. I am that branch. And the, invitation is to come and drink of it. Even if you have nothing, if you have no money, come and drink. There's life there. And and we're reminded the same way that the sort of Torah and in Deuteronomy, that this instruction that there's nothing to be added, there's nothing to be taken away. And until that day, when he finally comes to wrap this all up, our prayer is the same prayer that John has, which is come Lord Jesus. 
this last word of encouragement that we get from John and at the end of scripture is that Jesus is returning soon. John reaffirms the truthfulness of this revelation and he speaks blessing over those who persevere and endure. He reminds them that Jesus is returning and this should stir longing in us and encourage us also to pray, come Lord Jesus. Let us live with the urgency of knowing that Christ is going to return and pray for strength to endure and persevere, um, remembering that that what we look forward to is an unshakable kingdom where we will dwell on the goodness of the Lamb who was slain for our sins. So some final thoughts. Well, in Revelation, I think this is it. This is what we live and we wait for. We read so much of the scriptures with the understanding of Christ, looking back to the cross, but we need to also remember that we are still in the middle, just as the people in the Old Testament anticipated a Messiah, but they didn't fully understand what that would look like. We anticipate Christ's return, his second coming, believing by faith that it's going to happen, even if we don't fully understand when and how. We are still in the middle in this book of Revelation, and even the New Testament in general is meant to encourage and strengthen us to continue in faithfulness and perseverance as we wait to see it all made right. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of as we finish this New Testament, uh, it's fascinating. We finished with one of the most Old Testament books in the New Testament. Um, and it's amazingly full circle. Uh, I remember even an infographic uh, from the start, uh, maybe one of those first three episodes that showed sort of all these cross references. And the book of Revelation just pulls so much of the story of God um, into sort of this, this culmination. Uh, and at the close of Revelation, I can't help but feel from John, that this letter feels so pastoral for people Mm -hmm. suffering, just being persecuted, watching the powers continue to wreak havoc in the world. And John's reminding his people, persevere, keep perspective. The true victor is Jesus. And and he will ultimately judge right from wrong. And he will will, um, set things right as they should be. And suffering is part of his story and it's part of ours too. But hope, keep the faith and finish the race set out for you. And, And yes, maybe this messaging hits a little closer to home for those who are being very actively persecuted. But for us, there's still a reminder as well. The kingdom of God is in a spiritual battle between the kingdom of this world, Satan's kingdom. And the only allegiance we should have is to God's kingdom. And we know where the victory lies and it is in God's final plans. And so um, this desire to, to remind the people, keep your allegiance in check keep persevering because God is the victor in the end. And so, um, yeah, it's such a, it's such a beautiful pastoral letter, I would argue. Um, and so we'll finish with this one Psalm from Psalm 136. Um, any final thoughts on that one too? I just think it's a great Psalm to end with. We can remember over and over and over again, the steadfast love of God and how it endures forever. We can think back to creation, the fall of redemption, and this future consummation and take heart that the thing that endures forever is the steadfast love of God. Yeah, it's a beautiful sort of final song for us that his love never fails or his love um, endures. And so um, that is the story. And so uh, there's nothing to look for next week, but we will have uh, one sort of final closing episode where we reflect maybe on the last two years as best we can capture that. Um, and so stay tuned for one more episode. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thank you.